All right, welcome to a new episode of Guys Who Law. We took a one-week hiatus, but we are back. I'm Andrew Esbrook. I'm Jesse Weber. And we got a big episode for you today. We have the guys from Above the Law here from the Thinking Like a Lawyer podcast, Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice. Welcome. What's up? You know, it's nice because we went to your offices, yes. and now you're at our offices. This is like a mafia meeting. Like we're meeting on neutral ground. Eventually, we'll meet somewhere in the middle. It's I mean, a home-and-home home series. Exactly. <laughs> the most ambitious crossover in history. <laughs> Do you feel it? You feel, you feel that in the air? The two families are coming together. Um, but for this episode, we got two topics we're discussing. We're going to start with Above the Law's bread and butter. Um, we want to talk about what the law firm environment uh, is like these days uh, for, you know, we talk about young lawyers on this program, we're young lawyers, uh, so specifically for them how it is, and then generally, you know, what it's like to work at a big law firm and some other places. And then uh, next, we're going to discuss the big news of the week, uh, the lawsuit that was brought brought by CNN against uh, against Trump um, in, in, uh, about uh, them uh, kicking out and, and revoking uh Jim Acosta's hard pass um, as a White House correspondent. So we'll get to that. But first, let's discuss uh, some law firm gossip. You know, it's funny. I was giving this some thought. If there weren't problems in the legal profession, above the law wouldn't exist. Yeah, I think that's fair. <laughs> Absolutely not, right? Um, um, our, we, we are here to expose the pain of actually being a lawyer. Well, you, you worked... Ellie, for a very large law firm, right? Debevoy and Plimpton is a big law firm. Yep. What, what did you practice? Both you... Joe and I uh, did big did the big law thing for a bit. Joe actually did it for a very long time. Right. Longer I was, than you. Yeah, I was I was in and out in two, in two, two and a half, <laughs> three years, depending on when you start my sabbatical. Um, but yeah, I did, <laughs> <laughs> um, did Debevoy's and Plimpton, um, and I did, you know, complex, complex corporate regulatory defense, as I like to put it. The government's going to sue you. Two things are going to happen. You're going to fire somebody. You're going to pay the government money. How, how much money you pay the government is actually what the partners are concerned about, right? Because that's what the CEO cares about. What's the fee going to be? And so the partners are really working on that. For the associates and the lower level people, who's going to get fired? That's actually the less important question. It's not going to be the CEO. Let's just... That, that guy's keeping his job because that guy's paying your legal fees, right? So one of the jobs for the, for the kind of lower level associates is to kind of develop a fact pattern, go through all the documents, do all of the intake interviews with the people in the company, and, you know, help do the work of figuring out which relatively minor employee you're going to stick all the badness on so the government gets their pound of flesh, um, and that's one of the big re- I mean, we can talk about lots about I, I, I quit for many, many reasons. Um, but one of the reasons why I, I left that work is that it, it I, you know, you're basically one of the bobs from office space. right? Yeah. You're kind of figuring out who's who's and I can remember the names of, you know, Jill, Ira. I can remember the names of people who I sat in a room and was like, oh, that could probably fire that guy um, who then didn't have a job. Um, so I, I didn't like. I, I didn't feel like God put me on this earth to, to be a bob. Was that your first job out of law school? Um, yes, yes. I went straight through from college to law school and straight from law school to big law because I wanted the money. Um, and I did that, like I said, for two and a half years, and then and then I went in and I was like, look, I'm I'm done. I I don't want this anymore. And my mentor, the partner, look, I never say, and I'll say a lot of crap about law firms. I, I try never to say anything bad about Debevoise. Mm. It's a, it's a great firm. If that's your thing. Um, you know, they're no screamers. They're not particularly mean about it. You work hard and they pay you well. 
Um, so I, I go into my my mentor's office and I'm like, you know, I, I think I'm done. And he's like, well, I think you're just burnt out. And I'm like, no, I'm that too. But also, <laughs> I'm done. He's like, well, you know, let's just let's. I'm gonna put you on sabbatical because this is in you know, this is in June. Most people don't quit once you get past half the year because you're halfway to your bonus, right? And so that's and you get a sabbatical like one or two years into your job, isn't that like after your <laughs> 10, 10, 15 years in and you're getting like certain benefits? Put me on sabbatical <laughs> for six months, but the but the hook was, and we can talk about this later. But this is this is how they get you. This is part of the golden handcuffs, right? Because by putting me on sabbatical, what they were really saying is that if you come back by the end of the year you will get half your bonus, right? And that's, my year was like 45 for my my year for my for my class. I think my bonus was 45. That's so that's good, a good $20,000 that's just like hanging over me around Christmas time. Just come back to work and you get $20,000. Like a signing bonus. Um, it's, it's, the money is, the money is real. I made more money my first year out of law school than anybody in my family had made in a calendar year. So it's a crazy <laughs> idea, isn't it? You're 20. Well, if you go right out, you're 25 years old. Mm -hmm. You're making a ridiculous amount of money, three, three figure. I mean, six figures. And literally you're like, I'm a professional. My time is worth $250 an hour. Really? And Joe, like, yeah. was the money a big part for why you went or was, is, was there something else? You're like, you know what? I'm going to try out this law firm life. Uh, I really enjoyed, uh, I actually kind of liked the litigating world. I liked research and writing. Uh, I was promised that that was something I was going to get an opportunity to do at a firm. Uh, and I went, I went because I kind of liked it. And I went to the big firms because I went to a law school that basically holds your hand through the process. It exists to be a professional matchmaker between your time in law school and going to one of those big firms, uh, which I did. I worked at the big firm for about three years doing some of the same stuff he was, but also I had a little bit more of a focus with white collar criminal defense and regulatory stuff. And that's when I made the transition to a smaller firm. So I then worked at a boutique firm representing individual, basically representing the CFO that they, that Ellie decided to fire. Uh, that, <laughs> that kind of became my world uh, and did that for several years. And it paid also well, uh, not quite as well as big law, but it was not more than a year off of what I would have been making had I stayed at the big firm and gave me more opportunities. So that was kind of why I went the smaller route. I've seen his old apartment in Brooklyn. It paid well. <laughs> that apartment, sure. while huge, was not particularly expensive uh, for a bunch of other reasons because it was kind of, you know, a dump. But I did have, for years, a ridiculously large apartment because it was like converted um, candy factory, actually. So. So, um, so looking back on it, though, do you think that you guys cover law school politics and getting jobs straight out of law school. Do you think law school prepares you for jobs once you graduate? Or is it more of a formality that could be one year and then you're ready to go on? Yeah, I think all that's true. Uh, yeah. it's, it, it's, it's not particularly good at preparing you for the actual day-to-day -day of being a lawyer. Mm -hmm. uh, the first year is important to train you to, to break down how but you think. You yeah. said your school, though, kind of prepared you for right. it. Right, but, but no, no, not no, no. the that's school. For yeah. getting a job. Yeah. Yeah. For getting a job. For getting career, a job. Oh, career okay. services at NYU <laughs> was was great. Were, were very, very good at their job. The right. classes, uh, the classes yeah. weren't so much. Um, I mean, they were fascinating classes, but my international law class had very, actually, weirdly, actually, because I worked at Cleary Gottlieb, the international law class did come in pretty handy. I rep My first client was actually a sovereign. I represented 
Venezuela was my first ever client. Not bad. Uh, so, yeah. So that actually, I picked on international law. I shouldn't have. But law yeah. and blank uh, was not preparing me for anything I did on a day-to-day basis. But career services was very yeah, if, good. If the welfare office could hire Harvard Law School, that's where I went. If they could hire HLS Career Services, there'd be no more homelessness, all right? right. Like, <laughs> they know what they're doing. And as Joe was saying, like one of the things that the best law schools, the top law schools really do particularly well is to walk you through the process of accessing these six-figure jobs. Um, I didn't have to hustle for it. People showed up to my campus, right? I had to like chew with my mouth closed over a dinner that they were paying for. To get the to have an opportunity to get some of these jobs, um, and again, I, we graduated. Um, we're we're pretty old to date ourselves. We graduated before the recession. We graduated right. in the before times, mm. in the good times. I was rolling out of law school with you know eleven callbacks, six offers. I mean, it wasn't it was not difficult to get if you went to one of these top schools back in the day. It was not difficult to get one of these jobs. Even today, if you go to a top school, it's not particularly difficult to get one of these jobs. In fact, it is much harder to get kind of a, a, a socially uh, a social justice type job, right? Like me working at Debevoy is so much easier than if I wanted to work at the ACLU. I, I couldn't have told you as a 25-year-old, 30-year law student how to get a job at the ACLU. I didn't know any of those people. I didn't know how to, how to, who to call and how to network, but... You know, Cravath, if I wanted that job, was, you know, in a hotel room um, down by the river. Yeah, yeah. it's interesting because I graduated not from a top law school. I love my law school. I went to New York Law School. Yeah, Har- Harvard was your safety, right? Yeah, yeah, Harvard <laughs> was my safety. And I was like, look, I loved my law school. It was not highly ranked, and we gra- I graduated – not in a great time to be graduating law school and trying to find a job. I lucked out because I went to a, a medium-sized firm that then merged with another firm and ultimately became one of, the, one of, if not, the largest law firm in the world. And it was a very great opportunity to do that. But I got to tell you, like for me, very shortly after getting the job and starting there, I knew this wasn't the life yeah. for me. Now, I'm curious from you, you said you liked litigation, mm-hmm. but but at one when you first started, maybe like the first day, the first week, you're like... This is not exactly what I thought it was going to be. I mean, I I was pretty well briefed on how it was going to be, um, but it, I mean, it definitely was. So my, as I said, my first client was the first day I showed up, uh, and it was at five p.m. I was called into an office to say that something had happened. They didn't pounded some stuff. We need to help Venezuela with, get out of this with an emergency motion, uh, and so I stayed till three in the morning. Uh, that was my first ever day. And it, it did like, that, that was like, you knew that long nights were going to be part of it, but that was my first day. And I was like, oh, this is, this is really what it's like. Because yeah. don't they kind of shield you from it? Like when you're a summer associate, they yeah. give you like nice dinners yeah. and lunches. Yeah. You get out at five o'clock and then the reality hits once you get the job. I yeah, mean, this-, well, the, the, this was as a summer. Oh. I, I stayed as a summer till three. Uh, yeah. They were, they weren't messing around. Oh. Um, I, but Yeah. I started having panic attacks. Did you? Um, while I was working um, for the, for the firm, and I didn't have any. I didn't have a history of that, um, and I haven't had one since I quit. It was really quite specific. To I, I think that there were two things going on with me that that made it fairly obvious. Kind of like you said, fairly obvious, fairly quickly that this wasn't going to be a long term career move for me. Um, one was that I really did feel like I needed to be doing something impactful with my life and I'm not saying that above the laws yeah no well, you we screwed up on that for right right I'm, yeah. not, I'm not saying that I've succeeded in that um, but but kind of working for the man 
was not what many, many people in my family had sacrificed so that I could do, right? So that was kind of one constant kind of thought running through my head. Um, and the other thing is the hours. I mean, there are, there are people who are built to eat these hours and there are people who are not. And I, I'm not, one thing that I learned about myself is that I don't want to do anything for more than 10 hours a day. I don't care if it's sex. By the 11th hour, I want to be doing something different. It, it, gets, it yeah. gets sore. Right? Yeah, it gets sore. Nobody wants that. Right there, so uh, so the, the kind of hours that you were required to, to just be able to do and eat and be rational and be at your best and whatever, that was that was just never never something that I – And I definitely fell into the culture – when I was just out, I also went straight through. And, you know, when you're 25, 26, the, hey, I, you know, the day's done, everyone's leaving, I'm staying, I'm going to be here till four was kind of a, I was into that whole, this is awesome, I'm here all night, I'm getting this and that, and we're going to sit here with Diet Mountain Dew. and <laughs> You don't have to out. be a hero. Right. All of that sort of stuff. And that does wear out. Like, there is a point about, three to four years in where I'm like, wait a minute, yeah. I don't want to be here at four. So what was my the, first, what, yeah. I just, my oh. first all-nighter, I got, I come in, I'm ready for it, right? Because again, I'm first year associate, making a lot of money, I'm ready for this all-nighter, I know what's going to happen. So I walk in, I bring my pillow, got, <laughs> got my, whole, my whole setup, partner walks by my office, sees the pillow, he's like, what's up with the pillow? I'm like, well, you know, I know, and this is going to be due, and so I'm pretty sure that I'm probably, it's probably going to be a very late night, and so I just want it to be prepared. Um, and the partner goes, yeah, but why the pillow? You're not going to be sleeping. Right. Yeah. I was like, oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, yeah. It's so, hey, what's that sound? Oh, that's my soul crashing. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Thank you for that. So, so, so Joe, for, for you, what was your tipping point when you were like, it's now been enough and I need to move on? I think oh, well, after I completed a trial, which trials are named that because they're trying, uh, we had a... <laughs> huge trial that lasted several months before it was all said and done. The actual trial days, I think we only went for a week uh, before finally settling. But the whole process was just grueling and annoying and constant. And at the end of that, I entered this stage where they're pretty good most places if you go through that sort of a, you know, personal struggle. Uh, they then give you some time you know, some time where you aren't going to be overburdened. And it was during that time that I was like, well, wait a minute. I don't, I, I can leave now? Like, <laughs> yeah. the sun's still out? Uh, and it was around then that I started having the thought, I need to find a different way of doing this job. But I, again, I didn't leave. I just went to a smaller shop that was more manageable hours, allowed me, we still worked hard, but I mean, working late at night was, you know, oh, I got a big thing. I'm going to be leaving here at 11:30, not mm -hmm. leaving here at four. Yeah. Uh, and it was, and I mean, at the during the trial phase, there was a, there were times when I would go in on a Thursday and leave Saturday without having left in between, yeah. and that sort of thing just didn't happen when I moved to my, small. My wife works, uh, used to work big law, and now she's in house at one of the big banks, and she's she's got she's a structuring products attorney. She's got long hours, and there you know there are days where she comes home quite late, like 9.30, like, yeah. like after the kids go to bed. There are times where she has to like open her laptop on a Saturday. Yeah. Ooh, right, and that's complete like, so we're not talking just, a, when we're talking about big law hours, we're not talking about kind of a normal, I have a hard job and I work hard kind of thing. Big law hours are, are, are a thing that's hard to get your head around. When you bill, let's say you put in, you bill 100 hours in a week, right? You're there 
for 120, right? You can't bill every, if you're ethical at all, you can't bill every single hour you're in the office, right? So if you're actually putting in 90, 100 hours worth of bills, that means you're there so much more than oh, that, yeah. just trying, and, and so you, there's nothing else, when they say you have no life, it's not that you don't like have, you go out whenever you can and you drink and you know, you fight, you have making a lot of money, you fly first class and you do like, you can still do things that are fun. But in terms of having a, a kind of domestic lifestyle that is sustainable, it's just not at those hours. And we're still talking, Joe and I are talking about it fundamentally from the perspective of junior to mid-level associates. Don't don't talk to me about what happens when you want to make partner. Yeah, right? let me yeah. ask you this, because I, I haven't worked in big, big law before. Jesse has. Is there any time where you're going to see the light of day? Like, once you make partner, are your hours going to be so much better that you're in a different place that it's worth it? No. Uh, they, and there's an argument that they're even worse, yeah. but they're different. Uh, the one thing about, in my experience working with partners, is they do get to control things because they are the partner. So they often are working more, but they're the kind of people who can leave the office at 8 and, you know, do things. And then at 11, they'll open up their laptop and do work from home. Like, they can control how they do it. But the hours themselves are still huge. The control of yeah. your schedule is a big difference so that you get with seniority, um, which allows you some more planning. But absolutely, they're working. There are not cases that I was working on as a junior associate where I would email the partner and the partner was unavailable. Right, they were they were working too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's a little different. I mean, if you're a partner, if if you're associate, you're spending let's say an hour on doc review, whereas mm. if you're on an hour phone call with the client, it's a little different. But my question to you is, look, I think everyone here has an interest in the law. Obviously, we pursued it in some right. way or another. I actually, I really loved law school. I'm curious, is there any way that you can change the model of the law firm style, the law firm life? You've talked about maybe going in-house or, or um, you know, going to a smaller firm, and there's certain factors there that add up. But changing the law firm model, the legal profession, in order to make it bearable, is there a way? Because we still are in the model with a billable hour, and you have a certain amount of billable hours you got to make by the end of the year in order to get your bonus, you know, that you don't get fired. Is there a way to change it and say, hey, Come go to law school. It's a great profession to go into the law. Otherwise, most people are very negative about it. Well, I think I think it's I think it's wrong to start at is the way to change the professional model. You got to start by changing the the law school model, right? Um, the profession looks completely different when law school doesn't cost what it costs, right? Um, in the back in the day, before even Joe and I went to school, you know, way real old people. Why is this fixation on us being old? I have <laughs> yeah, no you guys idea are not where. old. You guys are not old, dude. Where is this coming? It's like the from? first cold day, and like my knees are like creaking, and I'm like, when did this start happening to me? Anyway, I got neck and shoulder <laughs> issues. We're all on the same page. Here. Law school used to cost like the cost of a car. Right, mm -hmm. and so yeah, if you got if you bought a used car and it was a lemon, it was like oh, it's a lemon. It's not gonna like ruin your financial life. But it's it's gonna be a bit of a hit. Now it's the cost of a house, and if that house has termites, if that house is is does not lead, you know, that's a financial blow that you cannot recover from. And it's because law school is so expensive that it pushes people into doing the most highest paying work that they can possibly find and hustling as hard as they can just to pay off their debts. Both Joe and I are doing this, you know, not because either of us, when we were like 18, were just like, man, I really want to help Shell. <laughs> like, they're so maligned. Shell needs some good legal. <laughs> like, no, nobody's thinking.
thinking that, right? We're thinking, I've got, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of debts that I have to pay off. And so that pushes us into kind of these big law situations. If you graduate with $10,000 of debt, $20,000 of debt, your whole, like, your, your, your whole legal options open up and you can do many more things in much more creative ways that perhaps are more forgiving to having an actual lifestyle. Yeah, I mean, uh, getting rid of the third year of law school, which the law schools themselves have a vested interest in not doing, but that would be huge. I mean, Obama talked about it. Uh, it, it has cachet out there. But that third year, we do hardly anything mm -hmm. of real professional value. And so getting rid of that to save a third of the cost of law school would be a good start. But as far as the firms go and what they can do, yeah, the billable hour is a archaic way of paying for legal services that artificially drives the idea that you should be working as much as possible and billing as much as possible. Um, we're reaching a point where if lawyers would embrace technology a little bit more than they're used to, they're kind of a backward profession as we far as technology. Change. Yeah, <laughs> but if they would embrace technology, there are new opportunities in analytics that allow you to do a better job of saying this kind of discrete task generally speaking, costs X amount of money. I don't need to tell the client it'll be a billable hour. I can just tell them, here's our bid. It's going to be this fixed amount. And you do it faster, you get your money, and you move on. Like, you don't have to be work yourself to the bone on that. Are you doing um, an ad read right now? No. I, I'm, uh, <laughs> no but, but, by the way, this is brought to you brought by. To you by. <laughs> yeah, no, but there's analytics that allow that sort of thing. The document review, which was the scourge of being a first or second year, was most of what you were doing or reading all these documents. The algorithms that these people have developed to automatically go through all of this terabytes of data and show the lawyers only the few things that matter anymore is really changing the workload at the bottom right. But, but isn't it also the actual task? So yeah. for example, if I'm, you know, I... I shine shoes for a living, right? There's only so much I can do, so much time I could spend on a shoe before I'm, you know what? It's perfect as can be. Mm -hmm. With a lawyer, if you're working on a document, um, I'm going to go back. I'm going to look at this. Oh, I didn't, I, did I fully research this? Oh, wait, let me get a second opinion from seven different people. Is there a way to change that and be like, okay, you know what? I know we have people's lives at stake. I know there's a lot of money, uh, rights at line, but like literally, is there a way to change the day-to-day -day task? Probably not because because law lawyers are fundamentally... Look, we, they don't have to charge by the hour, but they're fundamentally paid by the hour, right? Yeah. You're, and I think people, especially people who are interested in going to law school, really need to understand this. You are signing yourself up to work in a service industry, right? It's not like banking. It's not like science. It's not like engineering. Like you have clients. You are you are you you use the the shoe shiner analogy. That is actually relatively correct. There are only so many shoes you can sign because there are only so many hours in a day. But if you can shine, you know, eight shoes per hour as opposed to five shoes per hour, you're going to make more money. And so there's always going to be your an incentive to shine as many shoes as possible within the course of a day. If you work in if you're a doctor, and I only know of doctors, I'm not friends with them, right? But like, there is a limit to like how many you, you're. There is a limit to like how many surgeries you can perform before your surgical skills start to right. So there's not quite as much pressure to like I got to get another heart surgery in the day to yeah, make my right. to make my quota. Like right? that's not how that profession works. The law, because we are fundamentally serving clients. I mean, we were talking earlier about like how partners have have more control over their schedule. They do compared to associates. But you got to remember, 
they're working on the weekends because their clients call them on the weekends. Right. So we're involved in something. Our guy, our, the CEO of our company, is calling our lawyers. And we were talking the other day about how he was going to call them yesterday, which is a holiday. Yeah. And I'm the, I'm the jerk face that's like, dude, it's, it's Veterans Day. You don't, don't call the lawyers on Veterans Day. And our, my boss is like, why not? They're our lawyers. <laughs> we're paying them. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so like that, if, you don't, if you don't want to work in a service industry, the law might not be for you. Right. I'm what I would say to someone in law school right now is like if I was to focus anywhere like legal technology going forward like it's it's an industry that needs a lot of in, like innovation and mm-hmm. evolution it's, especially in you know the transactional side of it I think there's a lot of opportunities for like smart contracts like you're seeing the legal zooms of the world come out yep. and they're going to be able to take the place of some law firms that yeah. are you know starting businesses for people like creating those initial documents that's going to be much easier like we might get to a point where a contract can be negotiated automatically just by checking off different points and it'll put them together yeah. so I think lawyers need to start concerning themselves with how that's going to affect their jobs going forward. It's affected the medical medical profession and almost every other profession out there. But, you know, in the next 10, 15 years, it'll probably affect ours too. It's going to be huge. And it's already starting to trickle through. You start seeing these smart, like you mentioned, LegalZoom, these smart contract deals uh, coming up, these algorithms that are replacing a lot of the document review tasks, the um, and, and due diligence too for the transactional side folks. What I'm the big thing that I think will change, and I don't think the legal profession's thought through how it's going to work, is there's always a need for a human at the end to make value decisions. An expert professional, that partner with years of experience, to say, all right, well, this is all the stuff. Here's what I know that's a value add. What I worry about is that the training to become that person, yeah. because the law schools mm-hmm. don't really do that. The At training all. the training that got me to the point where I was a relatively competent, you know, 10-year lawyer was the years of making mistakes, reading through documents and going down rabbit holes that I didn't need to and learning that that was an error. All of that stuff trained me in how to make good judgments. We are now technology is going to take a lot of that off the table. Yeah. So who then, how do the people who become the next generation get those skills? And I don't think anyone's really thought that through yet. I think that's exactly right. I think that, you know, one of the analogies I like to make for, for lawyers is that it's not unlike a hitter in baseball, right? You just have to see enough curveballs at some level. Mm-hmm. You just have to see the curveball again and again and again and again before you really understand how it's going to move and how to hit it. A really experienced lawyer is really just the guy that saw 10,000 curveballs beforehand. Compare that to a different field like um, I I, I always think of engineering. Um, That's more like football. You you can throw the ball. You can throw the ball. Right. It's more like basketball. You can hit the jump shot. You can hit the jump shot. Right. Like that. That there's a natural skill there. That that and look, I'm not. Dog and you know, yes, they practice a lot and they take ten thousand jump shots. Are you talking about practice? I'm talking about practice, practice. right? But there's, but there in just, just like there are other sports that lean themselves towards just natural talent a little bit more. There are other fields that lean themselves to just like I'm a superstar natural talent. The law is one of those fields where the difference between a superstar and a and a and a and a and a useless person is practice. It's just it's just seeing the thing over and over and over again. So for people out there thinking about going to law school and then maybe even pursuing 
a career in this and say, eh, I, mean, I, I want to see for myself, which was me, by the way. Yeah. My brother went to law school, went to become a lawyer. He says, you're not going to like being a lawyer. I was like, I got to give it a try and see. There are people, like you said, Ellie, who it's built into their DNA. Okay, yep. I remember I was in the elevator with a guy. He was as disheveled as can possibly be. He hasn't shaved in five days. His shirt's hanging out of his pants. And as like sarcastically, I was like, what, what, uh, what group are you in? He goes, oh, Capital Markets. And I get sarcastic. I'm like, you like it? And he goes, looks me dead in the eye. I goes, I, I love it. I love it. <laughs> so like, how do people know if it's right for them? Like if you're in law school or you think about going to law school or you're in law school thinking about going to a firm, like how, what do people, like if they look in the mirror, like what are those people that, you know what? This is the right decision right. for them. I got two answers for you. One, do it for free. So like one is that you're not, there's a part of it where you're not going to know until you actually do it. Mm. So you should do it for as little cost as possible, right? I don't know if I'm going to like blackjack. So I'm not going to start at the $100 table. I'm going to start at the $5 table and see if it's good. And if I'm really good at it, I really enjoy it, then maybe I'll buy into the $100 table. That is like transferring from school A to school B. Go in, see if you like it, do good for a year, and then see if you can transfer up as opposed to starting with the school that you can't afford. So that's one like version of answering your question. The second one, do you like organizing? Do you like doing homework, right? Because so many people think, though, oh, I'm going to be a great lawyer because I like to argue. No, shut up. That's not what lawyers <laughs> do, right? Lawyers do not spend most of their time arguing. That would be a bad lawyer. That's all they did, right? They spend most of their time organizing. They spend most of their time reading and understanding what the entire, the enti so it's like you're not playing chess. You're just always looking at the chessboard. You always know where all the pieces are. And a lot of that is like there are people who really, you know, if you're the kind of person that like even when you were in like high school, like your trapper keeper was like color coded, right? You never lost it. Like that means you might be a good lawyer. If you were the kind of person who just like excelled at speech and debate in high school, that's great. You should find something else to do with your life. <laughs> uh, putting aside that I would argue that good debate is mostly about organization too, but and filing. But um, cuz yeah, it was just all filing. However, um uh, what I was going to say is we don't have a very good system for in put aside lawyering. Um what to do within lawyering? Um capital markets I didn't know anything about that. I didn't have anyone in my family who was a lawyer. I would have never known. I went into litigation because I vaguely understood what litigation was because I'd seen television. Um, <laughs> yeah, but but like I I have thought for years that there's something a good service that I hope we can do is help people understand that what the other other specializations are out there and whether or not maybe that's where you want to be. I don't know if I would have been a good corporate real estate lawyer. Maybe. I don't know. Never really came up. And there's no option in law school that really trains you for that. Because even when you're taking corporations classes, what you're really doing is reading litigations about corporate law. Right. So it's still mm. litigation focused. And then you go to the firm and the firm doesn't really have much incentive to let you bounce around. They're wanting you to move into something. So you come in and you say, I'm a litigator. There you are. They're not going to put you in their Latin American markets group because they 
don't have an incentive to take you out of what you said you wanted to do. So if you don't know, you never really have a good way of learning, and that's am, a problem. I am confident that I would have made an excellent trust and estates attorney, <laughs> but uh, I was similarly confident that I was never going to convince a rich white person to let me right, <laughs> handle I mean, their will. Yes, that, the that trust and estates group was always the group that I was like, well, now that would have been a smart move uh, <laughs> because they were the people who were really going home at five right. all the time. <laughs> and I guess every profession, every legal job is a little different. I mean, once it's, I, 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 there's a trust and estates lawyer at my firm. There's pictures of him and Clinton. Yeah. To him and the Pope. He's like he just like he know, he's, rainmaker. Like he just knew everybody. That was his job. Came in. I was like, oh, that's well. That's the other thing we haven't talked about, right? Is, yeah. is making rain. Like because that's the other. That's the you don't get to be partner in a law firm because you're a really good lawyer. I mean, they, they can go find themselves a really good lawyer. You get to be a partner in a law firm because you're really good at bringing in clients, and that's making rain. And that's something they don't even start to think about teaching you until you've been there for three, four, five years, right? So one of the one of the reasons why if I had stayed, I absolutely would have stayed at Deb Voice is because I hooked up with a pretty good mentor and a and a person who was, you know, as a partner was already as a young associate, you know, the kind of thing where like he would bring me to a meeting. I wasn't allowed to talk. I mean, we, before we go to the LA, shut up. Do not say anything, right? But just bring me to that client meeting, right? Just so the client sees me and I see the client and I hear the kinds of questions the client has and I hear how he's going to answer those questions as trying to sell his services to this client. Like that kind of stuff that I was very lucky, I think, to have as a young associate, most associates never get. And if you never get that kind of training, from your law firm, from a mentor at a law firm, then you're never going to make rain. You're never going to be a partner. You're just going to be the kind of older service partner, service lawyer who like has to do all the work, but doesn't actually make the, you know, the final salary. Yeah. No, that's true. So speaking of good lawyers, um, <laughs> you know, being a rainmaker might not help in this situation. This is a very harsh transition right now. I was going to say, <laughs> you're doing a great this, job. This is a very harsh transition. Um, Trump has been sued this week uh, by CNN um, because... You always have to say by who because, like, Trump has been sued this week is, like, <laughs> yeah. obviously. It, it happens almost every day. But By the way, this is a great transition. He's going really really to need a good lawyer. Um, but last week, Jim Acosta... Uh, his hard pass was revoked after he got into a confrontation uh, with the president. He was asking him questions about um, some immigration issues that were going on. A White House intern came over and tried to take away Jim Acosta's microphone. Um, the, the White House was claiming that uh, he was assaulting the said intern. Um, if you look at the video, it doesn't really look like that much. Well, the doctored uh, video looks more like yeah, that. Yeah, the, 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 one, of the <laughs> one that they made faster. Um, and then they didn't allow him back in the White House after that. So now there's a lawsuit today. Uh, there was, a correct me if I'm wrong, a bunch of amicus briefs filed by most of the networks out yeah. there, including Fox News, which I was surprised about. Um, but it seems like most of the media is on board, and there will be a lawsuit going forward. Uh, so um, what do you guys think is going to happen here? Um, does the does uh, CNN have have some good you know legal arguments to stand on? I think CNN has a great argument. Yeah. And I, I'm surprised, I'm happy and surprised that they are pushing it, right? Because what we've seen generally from the major networks is to roll over like a dog and do whatever the, and, and, and in fear of the president. Um, this is a clear violation of the First Amendment. You do have a, the press does have a right to go to places that aren't ordinarily accessible by the public, but are accessible by the press. 
Um, this is a re- revoking Acosta's press pass as a retaliatory action. The president has said on multiple occasions how much he hates CNN. He literally called Acosta a terrible person. You are a terrible person. You, you are a terrible person. Before they revoked his pass and did this retaliatory action, which lessens their ability to argue that Acosta was in violation of some kind of assault standard. Um, the other way that we know that it's not assault is because Jim Acosta has not been charged for, for assault. <laughs> which is what you would do if a reporter assaulted an intern on live television. He'd be charged with something he hasn't been. It's another indication that they don't actually think it's assault. So I think that he has a good case, and I think that probably quietly at some point, as opposed to fighting literally every media network in court, they'll just give him his press pass back. Yeah. I do think, and maybe, Joe, you can speak to this a little bit more, I think there's a larger issue here that the White House press corps is a joke. And that the the way that they've covered the president is a joke. And it is somewhat sad to me that we now actually have to make a literal federal case, an actual First Amendment issue, to protect the rights of these Muppets to repeat the lies from the president. Yeah, well, I, it's interesting. I... While I think there is a First Amendment case to be made here, I actually am less compelled by the First Amendment case than I am about kind of the due processy case. Mm. Like it's to me, the more strong argument is you give press passes to people and under what standard? And did you just kind of arbitrarily decide to take this one away? Like what is the rule for this? How are they guided? What's the due process to it? I think those arguments are particularly compelling because it's not so much that – I mean, you don't necessarily have to give a press pass to Gateway Pundit, uh, though I gather the Trump White House has. But, like, these people who aren't real, like, above the law, these people who aren't real journalists (laughs) don't necessarily need them. But the idea that you can have a major network and then on a whim take that away from them, that strikes me as a a claim that is particularly compelling to me. But but I guess the counter argument was that I'm curious to hear your perspective. Isn't it the president and the the White House's Privilege, their right to determine who comes in and who doesn't. And if they want to say, listen, Jim Acosta made his point. He asked his questions. The president answered them. But he refused to relinquish the microphone and nobody else could get their question in. So in that circumstance, doesn't they have, don't they have a right to say, look, he's been doing this on multiple occasions. They have the right to ban him. And it's not that they ban CNN. There's other CNN reporters right. that could come in. So to that argument, if they were to say, hey, we're going to ban the entire CNN, you know what, while we're at it, let's ban MSNBC or right. CNBC, there might be an argument. But banning one reporter who refused to give up the microphone, and you're in a way, if you're sitting in the Trump administration saying, I am inviting the press to the White House – I have ability to govern how this whole press conference is going to go. What would you both say to that argument? I mean, I, th- I think that's the most compelling argument for it that I've heard. Uh, the problem <laughs> is, like, I think it really does come down to standards. They need to have standards. This is allowed. This isn't allowed. This is why it's allowed, why it isn't allowed. Um, in this instance, the deputy press secretary just tries to take this microphone away. I'm like, I don't know whether or not. That was weird, though, yeah, right? It that was, was a little it was weird. weird. And like it, it, it came across as like you could say, well, didn't relinquish it, but also the decision to take it away seemed somewhat arbitrary. I just think that, and I think there's some decent precedent from the limited looking into this that I've done so far for this idea that press passes have to have some sort of a standard to them. And I think the trouble the Trump White House is putting itself into is 
I would not be shocked to learn that the White House Communications Department has commu- has conversations about banning networks they don't like. And that's all stuff that shows up when this case gets to discovery. Which is why it won't. Like right. be- Because of that, that's why they're going to end up giving Acosta's press pass back. Uh, yeah. Once they actually have to open up the process as to how they decide to take give people's press passes and take them away and whatever, the White House doesn't want that. Because you go- can't FOIA a lot of those communications. Right. They're exempted from that, but when you're making a lawsuit, when a lawsuit exists over it, they're going to get all of the emails in which the comm department talks about how to jack around different people they don't like, and I think that's going to make that. But even if but I, want to, I want to answer your, your sure. hypo, though, because yeah. I, I think what you did is important, and, it, and, it's, and it's a bugaboo that I have about the media coverage of Trump in general, right? Legal, especially legal reporters. They do this all the time. Trump does something patently wrong and illegal. And then, as a way to understand it, we all, I've done it myself, we all then try to imagine what a good legal argument might have been should the administration had wanted had wanted to do something that you know that they did. And that's fine as like a kind of a law school hypothetical, but it's not what the man actually did. So like to your question, yes, had that been what the administration said and that been why the administration revoked Acosta's press pass, they probably would have gotten away with it. But that's not why they did it and that's not what they said. And then later that's what – they're going to say that later. They're going to say that later and then expect us to, pre- to act and pretend as if we didn't know – we didn't see what just happened there, right? This is exactly what happened with the Muslim man. The man says, I'm going to ban Muslims. The man gets in the office and says, I'm going to ban Muslims. The first Muslim man is just like, dude, screw Muslims, right? It's only on try number three – that we actually get to something that, had that been the first thing, would have passed basic legal muster, and then the courts pretend that they're you know blind idiots and say like, oh well, Muslim ban three is fine, even disregarding Muslim ban two and Muslim ban one and Muslim ban campaign promise, right? Yeah. So actually, I'll let Andrew Sorry, jump in in a second. Blast no, off there for a second. No, no, it's great. <laughs> the, the one thing I'll say is, as doing litigation, I'm sure Joe mm-hmm. can agree with this too as well is. Half the time, when you're fighting for somebody's side, you got to go do that legal research and figure out, well, what what actually supports my argument there? Yeah. So the, I guess the counter-argument to me is, well, we don't know what legal justification is in the first place. We'll come back to you on what that is later on. Right, but imagine filing a brief with the court saying, like, I don't really know what I'm going to argue yet. <laughs> right. You know, even when you ask for a continuance, you're just, you don't say, like, I'm going to make a bad argument now pending a good argument later. Right, right. right you at right, least right. do the whole, like, in the alternative, if this one sounds <laughs> crap to you, what about this one, right? That's not what the Trump administration does. They do things that they do things for legal reasons, and we know they're doing things for legal reasons. And then later they try, and again, when I say they, I mean us. I mean the legal press tries to the legal press does the first job of backfilling the legal arguments for the Trump administration. It takes them it'll be months before Sarah Huckabee Sanders figures out how to say. Uh, actually, we were just trying to to enforce our standards. It'll take her months to get there. But do you, do you think the Trump administration cares that this might have been illegal or not? I think they're 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 happy that this is rallying their base. They yeah. want this, this CNN v. Trump. Yeah, CNN has the most incapable reporters out there. Like they're not they they have no credibility to yeah. be in this room. Even if Acosta is given back his hard pass, the president does have discretion of who he can call in that in 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 that hall. He doesn't have to call on Acosta ever again if he wanted to. I look. I'm. 
I am no longer interested in, in the fact that Trump does things just to rally his base. Yes, he does things to rally his base. Yes, it rallies his base. Yes, his base then shows up and votes for him. We know that there are 40% of this country that, is gonna, that would vote for Trump over their own mother, and that's just, that's just the way it is. And so I'm kind of more focused on the 60% of the country that isn't already in the tank for him than whatever he's doing just to rally the 40% of the, of the country that is. Yeah, I, 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 <laughs> yeah. I, I still just think that this is this is something that I, uh, if that's where they're going, which I agree, that's probably their mindset. I don't think they've thought through the risks here. I think it's a lot like when they were going to they were going to mess around with uh, suing all these places for libel for reporting on him, and somebody pointed out, you know, then that means they'll get discovery. Like I don't think that. The strategy here of how much this could be damaging to them has been thought through, and that's why I think they One thing been. I will say is that you'll notice that the people most angry about this are other people in the press, CNN, mm. other press, you know, good government, good press organizations. DNC hasn't said squat, right? And mm -hmm. I think that's partially because it's like, all right, fine. Because when the wheel comes back around, Fox isn't getting into DC, yeah. much less into the White House, right? Not, so yeah. like, there, there, there's an there's an argument here that from a Democratic perspective, that they want Trump to be able to do this because then they'll do this to Fox when the wheel comes around, which think, is why well, I don't even Fox know is already with CNN. I don't know as though it's even Fox, but I do think given that the White House has given credentials to or entities like Gateway Pundit and info wars and stuff like that. I think they're I think Breitbart. it's more that Breitbart. That's where I think they're more concerned. I think Fox News, while a big target, is much more treated as a legitimate news organization. But yes, I think there's now a precedent for giving those people passes that the Democrats will want to go back on. Do you think do you think the story blows over in a week like every other Trump story that happens? Yeah, everybody remember Kavanaugh and oh, of course. Dr. Ford? Yeah. I I think it'll yeah, I of think course. that they're going yeah. to give in. Probably, they'll they'll kick it around. They'll do it over a weekend, and then hope this all goes away. Yeah. Well, just because also we'll trouble do something different next week. I mean, right. we already right. we're not even we're, we're not talking about his illegally appointed AG. You know, so that's still that's always going to be a story. He hasn't. You know, it's been a while since he threatened another country with a nuclear bomb. That's certainly going to come at some point. Obviously, once the Democrats take over and start investigating him, we'll have more saber rattling to try to distract from the investigations into like because I assume Don Trump Jr. is going to jail now like at some point that's gonna happen right so distract from that we'll probably be in war with Canada or Mexico we haven't heard about the wall since the midterms and I can't imagine that that's gonna stop that's that he's gonna we haven't heard about the caravan they're never coming but the wall that's gonna come up again right so like no people it'll blow over I, I did this thing online where I literally <coughs> I spent a thousand words on Facebook which tells you I've been drinking um <laughs> <laughs> just outlining the hierarchy of how I decide to care about something because there's so much going on. It's so easy to have outrage fatigue. It's so easy to lose the plot of what's actually important that I find it useful to actually have a written out list of what I find important and what I find less important just to give me like the space of like knowing when I'm supposed to go to the mattresses and knowing when I'm just supposed to go to bed, right? So, so, so what we do, we do here is something similar, actually. Since we have a different Trump legal story that we talk about every week for the most part, 
we rate each one on a scale of one and one to ten of what you should should you actually care about this? Like, how much does it affect your life, and does it really matter? So should we? So maybe so maybe we do it with this. Yeah, let's do it. So the CNN story, the CNN lawsuit, ten be ten being the most important. Like, what's your what's how you describe? Yeah, like ten is something that everyone should pay attention to because it's going to affect your life one way or another. I'm talking about like if we were talking about the you know an election, you know, it really matters. So and one is. I'll say it again. One is like, you know, a Paulie Shore movie from uh, 1992. <laughs> it really doesn't affect your life that much. So on a scale of one to ten, this lawsuit, I'll start with you, Joe. What do you think? Um, if, it, if it really played all its, itself all the way out, probably around an eight. But since I am very convinced it won't, probably around a four. I like those numbers. Um, a 10 for me is Kavanaugh, so this, I think, probably is like 6 or 7 for me. Obviously, I'm, I'm biased because I care about the First Amendment. Um, so I probably have this, I pro- have this over 5, certainly. I probably have this at, at a 6 or a 7. Andrew? So I'm going to go 7.2. And <laughs> he loves the points. He yeah. loves the decimals. And throughout this administration, he's de- demonized the media in a bunch of different ways. But I think this is one of the first times that you know the legal system has been brought into it. And... I don't think we're going to really see it play out. I think it's just going to um, work itself. They'll have to give him a hard pass back or ignore him or something like that. But it is the next step in this process in, ter- in, in terms of him pinning the media against the people. Yeah, yeah I'll give it about a, a seven um, just because I think that, look, if you're a journalist, you're in media, you're a reporter, it's obviously super important. But as we kept saying, kept saying I think we're, we're going to forget about it by a week from now. And all the topics that you mentioned, Ellie, that's Guys Who Law, Above the Law, <laughs> podcast number three, uh, talk, thinking like a lawyer. You know, that's our third collaboration. But yeah. So so, so where can our, view, our listeners, uh, our millions of listeners find you uh, if they want to uh, follow on Twitter, Facebook, wherever. So uh, AboveTheLaw.com is the website where we are writing every day. Uh, I am also on Twitter at Joseph Patrice. I am on Twitter at um, L-E-N-Y-C. That's E-L-I-E-N-Y-C because when I got my handle, I didn't have any children and I thought I was going to live in Manhattan (laughs) for the rest of my life. (laughs) It's catchy though. And um, their podcast is Thinking Like a Lawyer. It's really good. I suggest listening to it. When does it come out? Which day of the week? Generally on Tuesdays. Tuesdays. We try to do a weekly on Tuesdays, which we're pretty good about. All right. So thanks, guys, for coming in. Thanks Thanks for having us. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Cool.